there is something wonderful about that first dusting of snow. There's even something invigorating about plunging your hand into that first couple of inches and feeling instantaneously this fresh sensation of of, of being alive. There is the, the cold has something about it that almost jolts us awake. And I wonder if that isn't the same for anger. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, I find nothing promotes work better than angry fervor. For when I wish to compose, write, preach, and pray well, I must be angry. It refreshes my entire system. My mind is sharpened and all unpleasant thoughts and depression fade away. Luther speaks of anger as if someone just threw him into the snow as an entire and his entire being has been awakened with, with fervor and sharpness and productivity. More recently, the 20th century novelist and Presbyterian minister Frederick Beekner said of anger, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. For Beekner, anger is not only productive, it is really quite delightful in its own bitter way. Still more recently, again, I came across a leading political strategist and professor who summarized the essence of good campaigning in our contemporary politics. He put it this way, if you can map an electorate's fears, if you can figure out what the people's deepest fears are, if you can map an electorate's fears and then turn those fears into anger by moralizing your opponent's sin, they will show up at the polls. Anger is not only productive, anger is not only delicious, but but if you can find a way to throw a people into the soul and awaken that angry moral indignation, you will get the votes. Anger is power. And on top of all of that, anger is biblical. I mean, we can readily point to times in scripture where God is, is angered at sin. The prophets are, are angered at sin. Jesus, he's angry in, in the temple when he sees this house of worship being used to turn prophets. And so he overturns the tables, right? It's anger he uses to awaken others to, to their sin and to the injustice and to the need for change. All this to say, there is much to commend and anger's ability to, to jolt us awake, to invigorate, to enliven us to what and who matters. But the thing about snow is that for as wonderful and invigorating as it can be at first, it can quickly also become dangerous. 
as you all well know, Central Texas just does not have the infrastructure to deal with massive snowfall all over the roads. But, but of course, if at all possible, you do want to clear that snow as soon as possible, because in these temperatures, that fluffy snow very quickly becomes this heavy, concretized, and, and quite dangerous sheet of ice, as you all saw in recent days. Same, if at all possible, you want to clear anger before it does the same with the human heart or even a human community. Let anger sit for a while and it will harden. It does calcify. And then across the hardened ice of anger, we find our words race forth all the faster. They flow forth more furiously. They, they speed forth and they hit with more impact. And it's not long before anger has caused a full-on crash with someone or someone's intentionally or unintentionally. And as some of us well know, the resultant damage and pain of those crashes can be very long-term. I find it telling that when Jesus addresses this commandment, the sixth commandment, do not murder, he doesn't go into all kinds of detail about warfare and bloodshed. He talks about anger. You've heard that it was said to, to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders is, is liable to, to judgment. I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Jesus recognizes the way that anger rips apart relationships and communities and churches and even countries, and it's essentially akin to murder. And I wonder if all the pain and destruction caused by anger is in itself the form of judgment Jesus speaks of in our passage. Beekner, when writing about uh, just how delicious the meal of anger is, that meal that's fit for a king, he concludes his thoughts this way. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down, this feast of anger you are having, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Or put another way, our angry words, our angry ways, they skid right across that hardened ice and we inevitably cause untold damage in that direction while also blowing up our own vehicle in the process. And so again, we are wise to shovel the snow quickly. Prayer to God, confession to God, praying some of the, the Psalms, praising God in song, talking with, with, with a trusted friend, about the mounting anger in our hearts. All of these and more are the tried and true ways to shovel the anger, lest it stick around beyond its momentary helpful purpose. The problem, I think, is that we live 
in a time in our nation where anger is so prevalent everywhere. The news, social media, extended family meals, editorials, campaigns, and in that kind of climate, snow hardens to ice so quickly, even if we didn't want it to or mean for it to. In our current climate, I think this has happened across the board for folks in the church, folks outside the church. And I think then one of the more urgent questions in our time is this. Aside from more and more carnage, aside from devouring ourselves and one another, what other option is there? I mean, what what can actually change anything in our family or our relationship or our country at this point? What can actually make a difference in all of these hearts now hardened by, by layers of, of anger and resentment and even hatred? Salt. Salt melts ice. Here's how Jesus describes what it looks like when somebody pours salt on ice. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember a brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to that brother or that sister. Then come and offer your gift. This is what being salt looks like in the world for Jesus in a very practical way. Even if you have, you believe you have something very important, even sacred to do, like making an offering for worship, leave it. First priority, go. Be reconciled with someone who has something against you. To that question, is it enough to just do no harm, to, to, to not be angry? Not for Jesus. Here, here we see he exhorts not, not just, so stop being angry, stop hurting anyone if you're being angry or any of that. But, but, but he says, no, actually, actually proactively seek the good of one who has something against you, one who holds a grudge against you, one who does not like you or something about you, one who is frustrated by you. Go and be reconciled with that person. Put another way, as Jesus does actually shortly after today's passage in the Gospel of Matthew, love your enemy. That is salt. I imagine we'd like Jesus to say more here, more more details about this reconciliation process, other actions we might choose to take given how difficult and maybe even unlikely reconciliation would be. But the simple fact of it is this, salt melts ice. And the most potent salt of all is love for those who have something against you. Love for those that you have something against. Love for enemies. Praying for them, blessing them against all odds and perhaps with, with slim 
chances for success, seeking reconciliation with them. That is salt. And that's hard. At times, depending on the history or the context or the climate, honestly, pouring salt feels like an impossible task. Which makes me mindful of the other thing that melts ice. Light. If there is anyone who's utterly justified in holding on to and concretizing their righteous anger, it is God. As God looks upon us and our failure to, to reflect God faithfully in this world, as God looks upon our sin. And yet scripture declares this, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet frozen, bound, and unyielding in our ways, in our hatred, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which is to say, instead of holding on to and concretizing this, this righteous anger, God and Christ Jesus sought reconciliation. He went to the cross and upon our frozen hearts, he poured forth the light of life and forgiveness that we, his enemies, might be reconciled. One of the central re reasons we place crosses at the center of our sanctuaries is because it reminds us that we gather under, we stand under the continual light of reconciling love. The cross makes it clear that, that this is a love that will go any distance for the sake of enemies. I wonder if one of the central reasons we gather for worship every week is, is because somewhere deep down we recognize, perhaps all the more especially in our current climate, we recognize that we have this fundamental need to stand under and to receive afresh this light, warming, melting, softening. Snow is good. Its touch is invigorating, enlivening, awakening even. But if you are living in a climate that is sub-zero most of the time, you have to shovel regularly lest that snow harden. And sometimes we fall behind. And so if you are gathered here today and recognize there is, there is anger or there is resentment or there is hatred that has accumulated over the course of days or months or years. And so it's, it's not easily swept away. May you this morning receive afresh the light of life that never ceases to pour forth with forgiveness and love. May you stand under that light and bask in that light for as long as it takes to notice a softening. And then, 
soften just so. Just a little bit more flexible because of that light. Go ahead and put down whatever holy and important thing you may have going and pick up a bag of salt. It may be a prayer, it may be a blessing, it may be a gift, it may be a note, it may be the first step in a reconciliation, and use it in whatever direction Jesus is putting on your heart. That person from way back when, that family member right there in the room with you, those people on the other side of the aisle, but somewhere, pour salt. And the thing about salt is once you start pouring it onto ice, it has a way of melting both the spot where it hits as well as the surrounding area. In other words, risk using salt. And while it may or may not go as we hope or we plan when we try to love our enemies, do pay attention nevertheless. More is melting than we might initially assume. And don't be surprised if some of the most significant melting is happening right here. Amen.